Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 54, Bread and Circuses. Greetings, citizens, and welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. The public execution normally scheduled for this time will not be witnessed now, so that instead we may bring you an examination of the messages, morals, and meanings of the Star Trek episode, Bread and Circuses. I'm Ken Ray, but you can call me Amicus Briefus. And I'm John Champion, but you can call me Biggus... Biggus Somethingus. Oh, that's very interesting. I have a friend named Biggus Somethingus. <laughs> oh. Let me ask you a question, John. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think it's funny when I talk about my friend? <laughs> Biggest something is. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of Mel Brooks. Wait a minute, was that Mel Brooks or was that um was that Life of Brian? Oh, oh my gosh! I'm, I'm uh, see. Here's the problem now. I'm uh, the the pop culture trap that is my brain. It's a trap. I'm now, I, I, I'm, I'm, there you go. I'm now conflating uh, Mel Brooks and History of the World and and Madeline Kahn being brilliant in that yes. with Life of Brian. That was Life of Brian, though, wasn't it? How dare you? It was Life of Brian. Five points ahead in today's game. <laughs> How dare me get it For wrong? For those of you keeping score at home, yeah, maybe yeah. I should do trivia. No, 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 no. no. You know what? You're the trivia king, please. Yeah. Although I'm gonna, I'm gonna step in at the end. I hope okay. you're okay I, with that. I would love that All special right. trivia guest star. Exactly, Cameron. but but All first, right. the man with the trivia plan, <laughs> biggest something is. <laughs> Here we go. So, Brad and Circuses was filmed in September of 1967. So it's actually pretty early in the uh, season two uh, pantheon of shows. And it's actually one of the earlier parallel Earth stories. So this was done before a piece of the action. Uh, so it might, it, you know, it's kind of strange that, that we've hit this streak here of par- parallel Earth stories. But this is one of the earlier ones. Um, and, you know, you can see the good and the bad in that. Um, I think the parallel Earth stories, well, well, we'll talk about their strengths and weaknesses. But this is one of the earliest ones. And it's also worth noting that this is the first show that John Meredith Lucas worked on after he was hired for Star Trek. Now, he was already a veteran of TV. And we have talked uh, so far about the other contributions that John Meredith Lucas made to Star Trek. But because this was September of 67, he was officially brought in at this point. This was the first show that he did. And at the time that he arrived um, and he was being introduced to everybody by Gene Roddenberry, let's just say that tensions were high between cast and crew and production. And uh, there's kind of a, a pretty well-known story about uh, John Lucas going to set. I, they were in Bronson Canyon. They were actually filming A Private Little War at the time. And um, Gene Roddenberry is with them. He's there to introduce them to everybody. And Shatner comes walking down the hill, and he sees that it's Gene, and he does a 180 and turns right around. And uh, John Lucas says that this kind of set the tone for how things were when he came into the show. Um, and you can read the the details of that. And a lot of the production history is written about Star Trek. Now, this particular story, Bread and Circuses, was heavy on the rewrites. In fact, the script uh, was being rewritten as it was being filmed. It was written by Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, and it was based on a story by John Newbill. 
Noble, depends on how you pronounce that, K-N-E-U-B-U-H-L. See also our supplemental episode coming up with Richard Arnold uh, discussing quite a bit about the backstage intrigue putting this episode together. Um, There was a lot of recycling from the Paramount costume shop here. Uh, You have Roman-ish uniforms, you have swords, you have uh, set pieces uh, with the Roman architecture. And um, it's kind of interesting that there is a uh, a memo that is our discovered document to go along with this show from August 10th, 1967, so just very shortly before this was made, um, about using Paramount uh, costumes, wigs, sets. Uh, it's a memo from uh, Gene Roddenberry to Herb Solo saying, hey, now that Desilu and uh, Paramount have merged, what's the possibility of us getting to use their stash of stuff? So we have that memo for you to see, and it's very interesting timing to see how that works out in relation to the production of this episode. So do check it out. And now, Ken, it's my pleasure to hand it over to you for a little actor trivia. Well, you can call me Ken if you want to, though. For this segment, I prefer the name Jamesus Liptonus. <laughs> Very good. Flavius. Flavius, who is the, um, who's sort of the, um, one of the protagonists, I would say the main protagonist in this episode, at least as far as the people on the planet, is played by Rhodes Reason. Don't know who Rhodes Reason is? Well, neither did I, but there was something about him that made me want to look him up. He's the brother of Rex Reason. Uh, Cal Meacham from the movie This Island Earth. Now, if you're like me, you've never seen This Island Earth, but you may recognize it as the movie that's being heckled in the mid-90s classic, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Love Cal Meacham. Love his voice. And when I heard what there was something that Rhodes Reason said where he, I I can't remember what it was. It might have been the, you know, the whole line about there's only one, you know, belief or something. Mm -hmm. But there's some line where he gets very sort of stentorian. And I'm like, I know that voice. And yeah, it turns out he's uh, he's brothers with uh, brothers of Cal. So I thought that was kind of fun. Um, I like that. I, I like the Reason Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I would, you know, did they ever do an album? Did they do they a spoken word anything? Yeah, I wish they had. It's sort of like every now and then we come across a voice that I'm like, oh wow, like um, the uh, the announcer in this episode, the one who's saying, "Hey, welcome to the arena." Yes, Got some great yes. games for you. That's, uh, that's Provider One. And I can't oh, remember right. his name, but I looked him up, and I'm like, wow, yeah. no no way. That's kind of cool. But yeah. no, uh, the guy who played Trelane, actually. It's like, if I could have, like, his voice on a record, mm-hmm. and then if I could have the Reason Brothers' voice on the record, maybe the whole thing could be introduced by, you know, Provider 1. I, I'm kind of hoping the next version of Siri will give you that option. It'll just be <laughs> the entire Star Trek guest cast. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I'd settle for I, the voice I, of Reasons, honestly. Uh, yeah, see, there you go. fine with me. Uh, Septimus... <laughs> That was character actor Ian Wolfe, one of those guys that if you grew up watching TV in the 70s or 80s, as John and I did, you'll recognize immediately as, hey, that old guy who was in, um, oh, you know, that thing? Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. That's, that's pretty much him. <laughs> um, that thing, by the way, included Dick Tracy, Amazing Stories, uh, The Facts of Life, The Fall Guy, and and really, you can just keep going back to the early days of talkies in 1934. I mean, the wow. guy had a, a, a long career. Uh, don't look for him in anything more recent than Dick Tracy, because that appears to be the last thing that he did. Um, uh, passed okay. away in 92, unfortunately. Um, and I'd say the same goes for Merrick and uh, pro-counsel Claudius, but not quite as much. Oh, no. Okay. Having been given no proper name for the duration of this episode, please refer to me as Calculus Maximus. Prologue, 
The Enterprise has arrived at Planet 4 in System 892. Quick, somebody call the Greek alphabet and get us some new planet names. Only to find that the remnants of the SS Beagle are in orbit. That was Captain Merrick's ship, and old Captain Merrick just happens to be a friend of Captain Kirk. Kirk has a lot of friends. Uhura is listening in for signs of a signal from the ship, but she picks up an old-style video signal instead. It's TV, but it's airing some kind of gladiator fight. The poor sap who just got impaled by a gladiator sword is the former first officer of the SS Beagle. We better figure out what's happening on the surface. Act 1. The landing party, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, beam down to the remarkably Earth-like planet where they are immediately met by a group of slaves hiding in the caves outside the city. Fortunately, they've had a good talk about the intricacies of the Prime Directive before that moment and don't let on who they really are. Septimus welcomes the Enterprise crew members, thinking that they are from some other terrestrial ship nearby. Flavius Maximus is a little unsure about the newcomers, though. He's a gladiator, and he needs to be reminded by Septimus that their way is peaceful. Kirk puts together the pieces. This planet is a complete parallel to Earth's Roman Empire, only this empire never fell. Even the brand names are after Roman gods like Jupiter and Mars, even though Septimus says they are false gods. They worship the sun. There's another wrench in the works, though. Captain Merrick has been around for a few years, and he is now the first citizen. They really need to find this guy now, especially when Kirk lets on that Merrick was too mentally unstable to pass the test at Starfleet. They head out to find Merrick, with Flavius in the lead, and are soon captured by Roman soldiers wielding machine guns. Act 2. Now chilling out in jail, Flavius explains that slavery is a little more advanced than the landing party may think. They have certain benefits after many rebellions and renegotiations. Flavius says that the message of the sun, though, is that all men are brothers, and that's what bonds them. The guards return to fetch Flavius, who says he will not fight in the game since he is one of the followers of the sun. Yeah, we'll see how that goes when you have to defend yourself in the games. Just as Kirk and company think they have an easy out when the guards are caught off guard, who should show up but the first citizen, Maricus himself? And he's hanging out with the proconsul, Claudius Marcus. Well, this is an awkward reunion. Merrick explains that the SS Beagle was so badly damaged from meteors that he had to beam down the entire crew. When he met Claudius, he was convinced to stay rather than going back home and letting the rest of the galaxy know about this planet. Claudius makes an offhand remark about contamination from outside cultures. He stayed because the order of this Roman Empire means that they have had peace for 400 years. It's a world of order and strength. Oh, and those crew members? Well, some adapted, some are dead, victims of the arena. Claudius is ready to add the Enterprise crew to his population and demands that Kirk start having his people beam down. The guards with machine guns make a helpful case, as does the threat to execute Spock and McCoy. Kirk is holding the communicator with a channel open to Scotty, but he refuses, even after Claudius cleverly throws a prime directive back in his face, and it's off to the games for the landing party. Sure hope they know how to use a sword. Act 3. Kirk's message to Scotty, while being threatened by Claudius, was that everything is okay, it's code green. Scotty knows better, though. They are in trouble, but they don't want the Enterprise to do anything. Just hypothetically, Scotty muses, what would happen if they could use the ship's weapons to lightly, oh, I don't know, stun the power centers of the city below? Hmm, we'll have to work on that. Cut to the interior of a TV studio. Sure glad the production team on this episode could pull that together. 
Kirk is on the dais with Merrick and Claudius, and he's got the perfect seat to watch the woefully underprepared Spock and McCoy face off in a gladiatorial game with Achilles and our old friend Flavius. Spock is doing all right. Maybe something in his Vulcan upbringing has prepared him well for fighting a Roman gladiator. McCoy is, well, McCoy is about to become gladiator meat. He lucks out, though, since peace-loving Flavius is not in the mood to kill the kindly doctor. That, or he was just really grooving on the replay of the fight music from Amok Time, don't we all? Spock sees the opportunity to upset the games with a well-placed nerve pinch, and Claudius is beside himself at the total lack of blood. McCoy and Spock are spared, but it's really only to put some more pressure on Kirk. Claudius knows that if he killed them swiftly, Kirk wouldn't care what happened to him. Back to jail. Act 4, Kirk must have tipped the concierge or something because his new digs are an upgrade over the cell he was in before. He walks into a huge room packed with fine furniture, food, and Claudius' slave Drusilla, who is packing very little in the way of cold-weather wardrobe. Kirk is intrigued, but he knows he's just being toyed with. Back in the other jail, McCoy and Spock are at turns trying to figure a way out and coming to grips with the idea that they may die in this place. McCoy is grateful for Spock saving his life, but he's seriously at odds with Spock's inability to relate on an emotional level about their predicament. Back in the minimum security prison with Kirk, he's getting to know Drusilla, who's just there to please him by Claudius's order. After a long nap, Drusilla is gone, but Claudius is back and ready to have a chat with Kirk. Claudius is ordering Kirk to die in the arena, but he wanted him to have a pleasant send-off. Claudius respects Kirk as a man, not a feeling he has for Merrick, and he promises a quick death. Oh, and the ratings will be huge. Just as Kirk is about to go live on TV as the subject of an execution, Flavius jumps in out of nowhere to distract the executioner. They must have been working pretty hard on the Enterprise because in all the commotion, the lights dim and Kirk makes a break for it with a machine gun. He hightails it to the jail where he breaks out Kirk and Spock. Just then, Claudius, Merrick, and a few Roman guards show up to put a damper on the reunion. Claudius orders his men to fight with their swords, and he tells Merrick to watch as these real men are about to die. Something must have gotten into Merrick, though. Like one too many shots taken at his manhood by Claudius, he has stolen a communicator, and he signals the Enterprise during the fracas. Claudius stabs Merrick, but at that moment, he tosses the communicator to Kirk, he, Spock, and McCoy are backed into their old jail cell just as they start to beam up. Aboard the Enterprise, Kirk commends Scotty for maintaining the integrity of the Prime Directive with his clandestine power shortage in the Roman city. Spock and McCoy report that Flavius died in the melee, but they sure wish they could have studied this group that worships the sun and figured out how they arrived at a position of peace and brotherhood. Uhura interrupts. She's been listening in on local broadcasts, and one of the Empire announcers couldn't ridicule this new religion. They've all gotten it wrong. It's not the sun. It's the son of God. Kirk surmises that this planet had its own Caesar and its own Christ, and gosh, wouldn't it be cool to stick around and watch this civilization adapt to a new God? Well, kind of interesting, but not so interesting that we can't zoom straight to the closing credits. <laughs> I thought that was funny, actually. Wouldn't yeah. it be neat to stay? Sulu, get us out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it be neat to? Oh, but we can't. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Surely, surely there's another historian who would like to stick around. But nope. Gotta go. 
Yeah, yeah, but but you know what? It's another situation where we we've just come out of a a brutal, you know, horribly fascistic government, and and kind of said like, uh, well, they're they're going to be all right for themselves. <laughs> you know. Well, we have to save that. Let's come back to that. Okay, all right, because right. that's actually that's actually topic worthy, I think. Well, yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, so here's one neat little observation: the USS Beagle. A clever nod to Darwin's ship. Darwin, too, was on a five-year mission uh, when he went to the Galapagos. I don't think they intended for it to be a five-year mission, but it turned into one. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. So like yeah. it was intended to be a five-year mission, and then he got cut off like in year three? <laughs> right. <laughs> but fortunately, he came back for the movies and the spinoffs. <laughs> that's totally cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's, yeah, that is kind of a neat nod, especially when you consider how the rest of this episode goes. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, right. kind of weird. Kind of weird. But Darwin ends up being, or the Beagle, rather, ends up being destroyed. Completely. In this episode. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, um, and did we, or did we not just uh, introduce a uh, planet to our much more powerful technology and then tell the inhabitants they aren't ready to know about that technology? Uh, See ya. Kinda. Well, we kind of you know? did. I mean, what's his name? Claudius already knew about it. Yeah, Claudius knows everything. It's like here he is talking about the Prime Directive, and it's like, dude, you you know the rules better than Kirk, <laughs> you know. At the same and, time, uh, though, he's not interested in that new technology. I mean, he's you know he's all about he's all about what he's got going on right now. And why wouldn't he be? He's top of the heap. Uh, yeah, well, true, but uh, but he likes some of those uh, those fancy heaters, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Except he he apparently had access to them and chose not. I mean, yeah. think about it. Once Merrick lands there and once Merrick, like, toadies up to Claudius, mm-hmm. Merrick would have, please, Merrick would have given him anything, would have given yeah, him anything true. he wanted. And and apparently Claudius did not want phasers. Uh, another thing to point out, uh, interesting parallel to the Omega Glory, um, we kind of have that same thing. Septimus here is confusing the lights in the sky with heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this one, Kirk refrains from correcting him. <laughs> you, you know, unlike with Cloud William and Kirk's like, no, 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 no. No, those lights in the sky, those are planets and we're from there and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, I guess the prime directive had already been blown in that case. So, <laughs> you know. Well, it's like we said in the, in the, um, it's like we said in the Omega Glory, Kirk is somebody who is, you know, newly to the prime directive, it seems. Mm-hmm. With a religious fervor, and now right. you know it's right. been a couple of weeks, and so he's understanding. Oh, so I don't, I don't, I don't curse about church. Okay, I'll quit <laughs> cursing about church. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really get the prime directive a couple of weeks ago, so we shouldn't tell them about starships and every, and you know I'll still die for it. That's yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you. I, I I'm I'm just reading a little further now into this whole prime directive. This is a big book. Yeah. <laughs> But but he's you know you note that uh, uh, that he is very happy about Scotty not totally. violating the prime director. Absolutely, yeah. So he's just going to go put that you know that little golden sticker, that little star, right Special on special commendation for Scotty with a note to himself to maybe try not violating the prime directive himself someday. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we'll see how that goes for me. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, that conversation between Spock and McCoy when they're in jail, mm-hmm. um, you cut away from Kirk with Drusilla, you go to the jail, and then and McCoy is really trying to have this heart-to-heart with, uh, uh, with Spock, and uh, it, it's another one of those great Spock-McCoy moments. And by the way, I, I, I saved this from the trivia. That scene was cut in most of the rebroadcasts since the original. So if you're watching this on Blu-ray or DVD or uh, Netflix, that scene will be intact. But that whole dialogue was either cut down or cut out. Um, 
if you caught it just on the regular broadcast after the original. And it's too bad because it's very thoughtful and and honest. And I think it's some of their better dialogue that they have. Hmm. You know, it's less about bickering. And, and you know, because very often it's played for comedy when they right. do that. It's less about bickering and, and more about kind of the gravity of the situation. And, and McCoy is a sort of reaching for, for anything. But it strikes me as a very dangerous move on McCoy's part, actually. Really? Why is that? Well, because, I mean, we, we've acknowledged before that Vulcans keep themselves so in check because their passions run so strong. So, <laughs> so what McCoy's going to do is wait until he's locked in a cage with the Vulcan and then start poking him, you know, like a bear, except he's in the cage with the bear. You know, like, yeah, you, you know why you don't let your guard down because you're afraid to feel because you're afraid of your humanity. This could have gone very poorly for McCoy. <laughs> so it ends up with McCoy and Spock almost bonding over how worried they are about Kirk, who, by the way, is right then getting laid. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's good that they had that moment. But, you know, their, their bonding moment is, oh, I hope the captain's OK. You know, and the captain's yeah. like, yeah. Captain's sleeping it off. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> He's yeah. fine. He tends to be. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I, I do want to point out uh, the other guest stars, uh, William Smithers as Merrick and um, Logan Ramsey as Claudius. Uh, they may not have had quite as illustrious careers as the other guest stars here, but it, it, it's kind of interesting that the Merrick character is so spineless Um uh, and and he's kind of weak. Like I don't think he's the best guest star actor we've had on Star Trek. But then he's got to stand up to Logan Ramsey, who is just chewing that scenery. You yeah, know, he he's kind of awesome. Um, so I, I I like their dynamic, and I like I like the constant put downs that Claudius is throwing at Merrick. Like that that's just kind of entertaining in a in a weird sick way <laughs> was he doing that before kirk got there though because i got i got the impression that 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 claudius was almost i don't want to say enthralled with merrick mm-hmm. but at least he was you know he was pleased that he was learning something new about him but then the, the second another off-worlder shows up mm-hmm. who does have a spine then he's kind of mm-hmm. like wow you it turns out you are not so much <laughs> right <laughs> you were just right. the first off-worlder i had seen so i thought that was pretty neat but now that i've seen a real one I, I see him kind of keeping Merrick as a pet, you know? <laughs> kind of at that point. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but know, then, but then he's got Kirk, and he's like, "Wow, this is a real man." Cool. Yes. Well, except he's not going to keep him as a pet. He's going to kill him. Well, you know, all, all in fun. Or have him killed. But the ratings. Oh my God, ratings bonanza. <laughs> or I'm sorry. Oh my gods. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if I'm Claudius at that point. Speaking of speaking of gods, I, I got one question. Yeah. Um, Bone says in this episode that Rome had no sun worshippers. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Did he meet Apollo? <laughs> right. Um, because I know Apollo is a Greek god, but then I did some quick looking up online because I was like, well, who's who's the Roman, you know, uh, correlation? It's Apollo. Yeah. He's actually called Apollo in both of them. So, I mean, to say that Rome had no sun gods, he met one. Yeah. He right. met it. I, well, that's why I can't remember if he was on the landing party that actually met Apollo. I don't think he was, now that I think right, about it. But right. certainly he must have heard the stories. Yeah. He got back the next week and they're like, so what'd you do last week? Ah, eh, nothing. <laughs> there is an 800-pound gorilla in the arena. Let's see how long it takes John and Ken to address it. 
Dead and Circuses Ken. Um, I, I think pretty much everybody knows, but it, it bears repeating that it is a reference to the idea of placating the masses by providing enough food and entertainment so they don't revolt. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, if they have the bare minimum and keep them distracted, then then they will not be aware of oh maybe the gross inequities uh, uh, thrust upon them by their government. And it's interesting here that in 20th century Rome on this planet, the TV is the stand-in, uh, which is very clever. You know, and, and in fact, you, you've got these great lines. Um, uh, when Claudius says to Kirk, uh, you, you know, surely this is you. You're aware of things that are centuries beyond anything as crude as television. And Kirk says, "I heard it was similar." Yeah. But to me, to me, it's Shatner saying, "I heard it was similar," and he almost says that line to the audience. Oh, almost. I, I don't think it was Shatner saying it. I think it was whoever had the final right on the script, or or that could honestly easily be a. I, I'm, I won't pretend to know which script is who is based on just the, the, the dialogue, but as yeah. frustrated as I've heard uh, Gene Roddenberry got with the studios from time to time, right. that right. seems to me that's somebody who's that's somebody who's been in TV a while. I'm a huge yeah. fan of how jaded TV already is about TV is at this point, <laughs> right. or how, how, right. how jaded TV is about TV at this point. Um, yeah. There is something interesting about the televised blood sport. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the fake, you know, like the, the cheers and the booze, they just turn a knob and they, you know, they oh, come better that. and worse. And there's actually nobody there to watch. Right. The weird thing is with the ultimate government control, it's also interesting. There's apparently more than one network mm-hmm. be- because mm-hmm. the guard warns Flavius to really fight saying, you bring this network's ratings down, Flavius, and we'll do a special on you. <laughs> yes. You know, which is yes. sort of like, it's like, which is opens up a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, that's like. That's like modern day China, you know, that's like the old Soviet yeah. Union. That's it's, it, but I mean, it's also, you know, having to compete for, uh, having to compete. I also love the idea of poking fun at TV and the, and, you know, with the public execution, like you're talking about. Biggest yeah. part of this is not going to be the fact that Kirk's going to die, but the ratings are going to be ginormous. And who would they be competing against anyway? But it's like, is there another network that's like the 24 hour cable news of executions? You know? <laughs> Maybe so. Uh, what's on the Lion Den channel? This is just, this fight's no good. <laughs> right. Keep turning, keep turning. Oh, I hear Caligula's got a special tonight. Oh, that might be worth watching. <laughs> oh, hey. Hey. Yeah, that's after hours. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be. Network yeah. XXIII after dark. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that, I think that whole thing is is a lot of fun, you know, it, and it, it's something that gets returned to in in pop culture all the time. The Running Man, you mm-hmm. know, I love that movie. The just the idea of completely lampooning and and blowing apart uh, the 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 sick fascination that the audience has with you know increased blood sport on TV. And you, you kind of watch that movie and you go like, okay, maybe when this came out it was shocking, but uh, now you look at reality TV and you think, yeah. Yeah, I could see this happening one day. Yeah. It'll it'll come, you know. <laughs> Sadly it may. Yeah. yeah. Um Rollerball was another one that I thought of. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. Um which was a few years after this. Running Man didn't hit until like 86, 87, I suppose, but yeah. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Interesting to see them start, you know, sort of pursuing this idea in the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Merrick a little bit. Um, he has this st- strong uh, conservative streak. And I, I mean that with a little C because he, he says like this is a conservative world, um, it, particularly when it comes to the contamination of bad ideas. Like he's totally drunk the Kool-Aid when he gets down there. I think part of it might be uh, just self-preservation. 
Like, mm-hmm. hey, I've, I've got a good gig if I can be Claudius's toady. Um, but he is, at least according to Kirk, he is seriously into the order of this empire. And you touched on interesting things about his character makeup. Uh, Kirk says that he was too mentally unstable to <laughs> to pass the test at Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you kind of have to wonder what that test was. Was it the Kobayashi Maru? or a, a precursor to the Kobayashi Maru, something like that. Well, nobody you know, passes the Kobayashi Maru, except for well, Kirk. Yeah. But what did he do? He saw the three Klingon ships coming. He's like, all right, lower shields. We're just, just, uh, we're going to get caught. <laughs> just says, let him take a shot at us. Uh, <laughs> Ensign, bring me a bedpan. <laughs> right. I don't know what that would be. I don't know what that would be. Yeah, you talked earlier about the fact that, um, that um, oh, Claudius... Mm-hmm. keeps making fun of Merrick. I actually kind of wondered if Bread and Circuses, um, if this episode uh, might also be a sequel or sort of like a, um, a, a PS to the Omega Glory, almost like the morality tale hmm. to the Omega Glory, um, you know, where they have the whole thing about, you know, yeah, it, it, believe what you say, live your words, do, you know, the, the Kirk speech at the end of Omega Glory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part of that is because if you don't, what are you? You're weak. You're a loser. You will fold like a cheap tent. Nobody will respect you. I mean, that sort of seems, Merrick sort of seems to be the illustration of what happens when you don't do what you say mm-hmm. you're going to do or when you don't act as you say you want to be, which I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. But, you know, I mean, you pointed out the whole thing, you know, and Claudius mm-hmm. is like, uh, would you leave us, Merrick? The thoughts of one man to another <laughs> cannot possibly interest you oh my gosh yeah what a great line that is <laughs> because you could interpret that a lot of different ways um <laughs> i'll leave that to our audience um you have to wonder again about uh, about merrick he, he gets down to this planet and how long did it take him to realize like oh well we're done for um, you know, I'll, I'll be the crew. Here you go. Here's my crew. And uh, see you later. Good luck, guys. Um, whereas the Starfleet captains, as they say, and as Claudius knows in this, would rather die than violate the prime directive. Uh, see also a taste of Armageddon, the apple, etc. Um, <laughs> um, well, he just got look, they just they, they stopped off someplace and there was like a new memo about the prime directive. OK. Okay. One of right. the space stations. He didn't realize that that was actually a thing. Remember, he was one of the guys who helped write it. So he yeah, thought it was still yeah, kind yeah, of a yeah. work in progress. And now they've apparently said the end. And so now, okay, okay. So this is how the prime directive works. Okay. Cause I knew we were thinking that. All right, good. Um, there was one other interesting thing to me about, I, it's sort of a classism. I, I don't even know how to put this exactly. Hmm. There's pro council is telling Kirk, look, you're going to crack. America's cracked. And you and he are just alike. Mm-hmm. And Merrick corrects him, pointing out that, you know, now Kirk is the captain of a, of a, of a starship. Right. And Merrick's just the captain of a spaceship. Right. And like you said, Merrick, you know, sort of flunked out of Starfleet. Yeah. And having failed, and I don't know if this is, I, guess, I, I think, personally, I think this is a good thing. He found another way into space. But sort of like the quicker way into space. Like, what did he join? Like, not the merchant marines, but like the merchant service or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So it's like it's like it's like a lesser branch of the military, I guess, yeah. in some way. And I know you're not supposed to say that there are lesser branches, but I mean, not everybody is going to be a member of SEAL Team Six, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's say that's let's make that comparison. Kirk's SEAL Team Six, and Merrick is, I you know, somebody who's mostly on kitchen patrol. I guess <laughs> right. I don't know. Right. Right. 
Um, so, so the interesting thing is Merrick's guys would actually be, you know, kind of tough guys. In fact, they might be too tough for Starfleet, right? Hmm. I don't know. There's just kind of a weird thing. I mean, there is very much disrespect for Merrick <laughs> because he didn't go through, you know, everything that, that Kirk went through. But at the same time, he's, he's, his people are kind of tougher in a way. If fighting was what they were, uh, fighting was all that they were about, that yeah. would actually make Merrick and his people the best. Although Merrick doesn't seem to be much of a fighter either, but his people must have been because Claudia says at one point, "Look at them; they they can't fight. Your people fought better than this, Merrick." But you know, hmm. I don't know. But, it was just kind of an interesting. It was it that would be an interesting thing to explore if we were going to explore it. That's not really the story they're telling here. Well, well but hang on. But this also means that uh, the men under Merrick's command are presumably not as smart as Merrick, and we know that Merrick is not nearly as smart as anybody on the Enterprise. So <laughs> it, it was probably a pretty easy thing. He he calls he, up to the Beagle and he's like, "Hey, why don't you send down about twenty guys? Okay, cool. Yeah, don't worry about it. No, he, no, we leave the phasers on board." He was smart enough to survive. Yeah, well, by, by having no spine. <laughs> well, maybe. Okay. I do yeah. have one other question really quickly because I know we have one other topic that we're going to hit, and that's probably going to take the bulk of this. But <laughs> right. um, Okay, so Scotty gets the commendation for not violating the Prime Directive. I guess Kirk maybe gets honorable mention for not violating the Prime Directive <laughs> because he certainly could have okay. done a few things, right? Yeah. They left. So so what, what happened to Merrick's crew? What happened to Merrick's crew? What happened to your crew, Merrick? Well, what happened to Merrick's crew was uh, the people who could sort of um, adapt to Roman life mm-hmm. adapted to Roman life, and the people who couldn't died in the arena. Yeah. So there are some people from 24th century, sort of like something parallel to Starfleet, not Starfleet exactly, but there are spacefaring people mm-hmm. now living on this planet. Mm-hmm. Did Kirk yep. not violate the Prime Directive by leaving them there? I understand leaving Roman society as it is. I understand leaving uh, Claudius in power because that's the way this society, you know, evolved and advanced and whatever. And, uh, oh, yeah, those 20 guys, ah, they'll fit right in. <laughs> well, well, remember, they've been there at least six years now. Yeah, that's and- true. They're probably in good hiding, and what are they doing? Well, they're eating and they're watching gladiator fights on TV. You don't know that. They could be building phasers and trying to take over the society. (laughs) Well, it's true. They could be contaminating people with ideas of, you know, space being a final frontier, not just this (laughs) thing with, you know, things shining down on you in the middle of the night. Well, you know what? Good luck to them if they are. (laughs) Maybe this is another planet we should come back to in a few years and uh, see how they're doing. Viva la resistance. That's right. It. <laughs> exactly. Right. They're, the, they're, the, they're the moles. Okay. So, Ken, um, yeah. I, I believe it was uh, last week or the week before uh, you, you pimped me out and you said, okay, you, you want to talk about the big topic? <laughs> you, you want to you bring up the big one here? Yeah. So I ask you, Ken, you ready to bring up the big topic? No, I think you're ready to bring up the big topic. I think I actually I, have less to say about this than you do. Well, I, I kept trying to think uh, about how I really felt about this. Um, throughout the episode, we were given the idea of uh, the people on this planet worshipping the sun, S-U-N, worshipping the big fiery ball in the sky. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end... We're only was, given that idea once. R- well, right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's only it's one cut where you yeah. see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, apparently wordplay is not something that happens in the 23rd century. No, they're totally bereft of the idea. Because when they say followers of the sun and then they say all men are brothers, you know, in that great Cal Meacham voice. Well, in that Cal Meacham's brother's voice. Uh, You know, when they say that, that, I'm like, oh, okay, the sun. No, 
Apparently <laughs> not. Spock knows more about television and about driving a standard transmission car than he knows mm-hmm. about the Son of God. Yep. Or, and you know, then, in, in Earth history, anyway. Right. So we get to the end, and, it, and it's up to Uhura to just really hammer this home to the, the three guys on the bridge who have been on the planet now right. for days saying, no, 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 you don't get it. It's the son of God. And then it sort of everybody clues in and Spock's like, oh, okay, oh, I get it now. Duh. Um, and they assume that this parallel history plays out exactly the same way. Um, and, of course, this is the big – Kirk actually says this planet had their own Caesar and they had their own Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, – I actually just don't know how I feel about it. I'm trying to still kind of work this out in my head. It, to me, the worst thing about it is that it's a sort of gratingly lazy storytelling, kind of like with the Omega Glory. Um, when we stop using sort of metaphors and the the grand vastness of space, the ability to tell really just wide open stories, and instead we kind of spoon feed the audience with the exact duplicate of what we're discussing. So instead of there being a discussion anymore, it's just like, nope, here you go, boom, metaphor, right down your throat. And, uh, you know, the the reveal of the Son of God could have been taken a few ways. Uh, I I think for those who believe in this divinity aspect and and think of it extending beyond Earth, it's kind of a ham-fisted way to just retell the same story. Okay, this guy comes here, saves them, and now you have a new religion of brotherhood and peace and love. And otherwise, I think you have the parallel here where it, you're just talking about a revolutionary individual. And there are a few in this episode, like Flavius, who buck the status quo in the favor of freedom. You know, um, I think the greatest defense of that final scene is that I, I think it doesn't really – have any impact anymore i for those three on the bridge it's sort of like an oh okay moment not an oh wow moment um Mm. since the the you know the the parallels the things we're expected to swallow with a grain of salt here are just all over the place i feel like there's not a statement here about religion or god or or anything one way or the other uh mccoy earlier on in the episode says that they represent many beliefs and it's flavius who kind of snaps back there's only one belief <laughs> you know right. so i i guess i'm sort of left the way that i was at the end of the omega glory i wanted it to be more clever than it was and uh, particularly when we know that this episode is written by Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, who should know Star Trek better than anybody, sort of what are, what are we left with? What are we supposed to think about this? Because either you say, well, on this planet, they have their own revolutionary leader who will finally get them out of this fascistic style of government, where really that, that's what we're concerned about. We're concerned about the fascism and the death and less so specifically about what they believe. The people on that planet are concerned about what they believe, but to us as outsiders, we shouldn't necessarily be concerned about what they believe. And and then from a religious standpoint, well, well, what does that say? Does that say that every planet has its own visitation by the Son of God? This is something that he does, is it goes around planet to planet and replays the same story in order to save a certain group of people there 
Um, I, I'm just I'm kind of flummoxed by this, Ken. Well, I mean, back up a little bit. Nobody actually said that there was a divinity to the sun that they're worshiping. I mean, all we know is that there is a parallel in the way each of these planets um, has evolved or has mm-hmm. has gone through has gone through existence, right? I mean, it's not assumed, I don't think, by Kirk, Spock, and McCoy that Jesus is the Son of God. It mm. is assumed that what happened here on Earth is going to happen there as well. And so maybe mm. that leads to good things, maybe it doesn't. Now, you say there's not an oh-wow moment. I felt like there was an oh-wow moment from everybody except for Spock. Like, Spock, <laughs> Spock's just kind of like, oh, do I say anything? Do I not? You know? <laughs> but Kirk, yeah, yeah. Kirk and McCoy kind of get, like, almost goofy grins on their face. Yeah, And I don't know if that is just, ah, I want to be neat to see, you know, how this plays out here as opposed to how it played out, you know, on Earth. Or if they're actually thinking, wow, this is going to be such a fantastic thing. Because, well, I don't know, they hit upon the idea. And, well, they don't hit upon the idea. It's explained to them. And when it happens, they're kind of all smiles and hey, neat. Um, you know, a religion and or a philosophy based on love and total brotherhood, you know, glossing over, you know, uh, the Crusades and the time that Christianity has been used to justify bigotry and wars and, you know, <laughs> right, all kinds right. of horrible things. See, also, uh, you know, other religions. So I'm not just yeah. I'm not just bashing Christianity here. I'm not even saying sure. that religion is bad here. Um, although, you know, I'm, I'm sure to some people listening, it sounds as if I am. I am saying the goofy grins on their faces seem to indicate that this is very much a past thing so far back in memory that they can recall television <laughs> mm. before they can recall uh, Jesus. It just feels like it feels like it, it, it with with the passing time. It's lost its rough edges. It's lost its bad associations. Who knows? Maybe Kirk is just interested, like passing like, oh, wouldn't it be neat to see how that happens? You know, this time as opposed to the last time. And the, the weird thing, though, is we're drawing such a parallel for something that is not running parallel. Yeah. So apparently 2,000 years ago, there became these followers of the sun, but they're still slaves and they're still living in caves. And 2,000 years later, I mean, there's like, what, 12 of them? Right. No, there were 12 of them, including the three from the landing party. So there's like nine of them, at least with Septimus and Flavius. Right. And so this idea that this is going to blossom, I mean, I think it's actually Spock who says eventually um, a better, you know, uh, something better will take the place of of the imperialistic uh, regime that's there. I'm not seeing evidence of that, hmm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which uh, struck me as kind of odd. Now, the other thing, though, uh, uh, back from all of this, yeah, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember which episode it was exactly, uh, but you said this is just about getting off the planet. This, the, yeah. there's nothing here about you know whether we care or not. You're saying that in this episode we care about sort of the imperialistic or, or fascistic society. I do not believe that we do. I believe that we are just trying to get off the planet here. It's an interesting study, and we throw our characters into it. We are not looking to change it. We are not looking to grow it. We're not looking. We're not going to go back and help the followers of the sun. We're not going to go back and try to stop the Romans. We're going to try to get out and leave this as it was. It's like, I can't remember if it was in one of the supplementals. I can't remember if it was Scott Mance or if it was the other person whose name I always forget. Mark Altman? I can't remember if it was Scott Mance or Mark Altman who said, you know, that they actually love this episode because there's, I mean, you know, they they land there, they realize doing anything would violate the prime directive, they leave there. Mm-hmm. This is the way the society is going. Let's let that roll, and you know, maybe somebody will tell us one day what happens. 
Right, right, right. Well, I mean, the, it's an interesting way to look at it. The, the idea of, um, you know, like, like I said, if we look at this as a non-divine thing, we look at it as a, a social political revolutionary who is, well, now being worshipped mm-hmm. by these people who can potentially implement um, a, a society based on equality and love. That's great. They're outnumbered. <laughs> they are they are overpowered. Yeah. Uh, so that they've they've got a, a difficult road to travel here to do that. Um, and yeah, I you know it's interesting that you saw that ending uh, back on the Enterprise Bridge as, as them just sort of looking at that looking at that situation saying hmm okay well maybe this is about to happen um but maybe it isn't and they're really not that concerned about the way things go down there that that it is prime directive okay we we had our little taste of it and now we're getting out and maybe we'll put up a roadblock just like we do at talos and say nobody go here (laughs) they're gonna fight it out on their own um but but I do feel like the the implication, particularly with Ahura's line, where she says that the radio announcer was trying to ridicule this other religion and he just couldn't do it, um, that it makes me think this is sort of telegraphing to the audience of Star Trek. This is the more true religion. The, like this is the more true thing than than anything else that has occurred on this planet. And and I you know things obviously will change greatly in Star Trek when we get to later incarnations of Star Trek where we do take even more of a hands-off approach uh when it comes to religious aspects of of our crew. Um but I I don't know. It's sort of this this strange, you know, wink of recognition from the Enterprise crew straight to the audience saying, and then it was Jesus who came to this planet. It just seems strange to me, and, uh, and it feels like they, they stopped dealing it with um, bigger, more interesting, more clever metaphors. And they just sort of said, well, if we're going to do Rome... We're gonna do Rome, <laughs> and we'll do, and we'll do this entire history with this character that is now worshipped as as a god, as the son of God. So that's why I'm still flummoxed by the ending here. I, I just don't know quite how I feel about it. It just seems strange. It feels out of place because I think everything else that we get in the episode is um, is kind of interesting you know it is this sort of cat and mouse game again where it's just they keep getting captured they keep getting thrown to the arena they have to survive one more time and they've got to outsmart Merrick and Claudius cool and they do that and they get off the planet and they leave the planet alone but then you tack on this other thing that um, it just feels strange and it feels out of place to me Calculus Maximus Death Decree. The hour for discussing the lasting import of bread and circuses is upon us. You know, maybe one of the most uh, gratifying things about this episode, John? What's that, Ken? Uh, Claudius got his speech impediment taken care of. 
No, uh, different Claudius. Oh. You're thinking of I, Claudius. Oh. This is other Claudius. Oh, am I? <laughs> uh, uh, other Claudius. Uh, it's like a sort of a rap thing, but different. Um, time now to do that thing we do where we try to figure out what the messages, morals, and meanings of an episode are and whether or not the episode stands the test of time. Um, interesting that we're talking about an episode that sort of spans a whole bunch of time. I'm curious, John. Um, which do you want to do first? Do you want to do whether the episode stands up or do you want to do the messages and morals and meanings? Uh, let, let, let's do standing up. And right. and I'll say – I'll give it kind of a, a qualified yes. Um, the first time I watched it, um, I just – I didn't know what to make of it. And I just sort of I, – I kind of dreaded going back to watch it for the multiple times afterward to kind of formulate <laughs> our show. Yeah. Um, but, but then I, I – I got into this thing of just sort of enjoying the actors and enjoying the action. It is dark and the, the clever little swipes at network TV and ratings and all that, that that's fun and it is mm-hmm. smart, you know? Um, yes. But then the other stuff in the show, I think undermines all of that clever, dark commentary. Um, so it mostly stands up. Uh, they just sort of, I think, pull their punches at a certain point. What about you, Ken? Well, what this episode suffers from, it seems to me, as far as being a production, is um, 50 other years of television and movies. Mm -hmm. Like, like if if we can have the people behind the uh, short-lived series Caprica Mm -hmm. make this episode, and I don't remember if Ronald Moore was actually... Did did Ronald Moore do Caprica, or did he he leave it after Battlestar Galactica? He he pretty much left it after Galactica, but you had a lot of the same people from Galactica. Well, whoever handled Caprica, I think, could make this episode beautiful. This episode, in their hands, could actually be a movie. Now, you know, do you do that with Star Trek? Oh, yes, please, because let's do another episode (laughs) of Star Trek for the reboot. (laughs) Right. it, 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 what it suffers from is we've seen things like Network, which is a fantastic indictment of television and a fantastic yeah. indictment of bread and circuses without being Roman. I mean, it's just a fan, I mean, it's it's amazing like that. We've seen the Truman Show since then. Mm-hmm. And we've seen so many things that are about, you know, just sort of distracting people. And so it kind of suffers from that. And it suffers from the fact that it was made in 1967 or 8, you said? 7. Uh, 7. Yeah. Made in 1967, uh, broadcast in 1968. We didn't have the kind of budgets. We didn't have the kind of abilities. You know, they were cranking out shows uh, five days each or six days each, depending on, you know, how the Mm -hmm. shoot went. Mm -hmm. So you just you can't get quite as gritty. And so for that, unfortunately, it kind of suffers a bit. As far as the messages, it depends Mm -hmm. on, I guess, if we're going to assume that this is, as I said, maybe tacked on to Omega Glory. By the way, kids, here's what happens to you if you don't live by your code. You end up like Maricus, sad, pitiful. Look at him. Look Dead. at him. I, just, uh, I don't even <laughs> want to look at him. That's how uh, yeah. Maricus. Uh, right. Make this noise after you say his name. Maricus. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's what happens if you don't live to your code. If we assume that that's that, I'm not really a huge fan, honestly, of the morality tale anyway. I mean, I assume, I mean, there's sort of redemption for Merrick, but there's not really. I mean, we don't even get the moment of Claudius going, I didn't think you had it in you. You know what I mean? Because what Merrick did actually is the kind of thing that Claudius should applaud. Sure, he messes up his order a little bit, but he stands up and is a man. Finally, Mm -hmm. the, the things that one man might have to say to another might be of interest to Merrickus. Sadly, he's laying there dead now, but, you know, he could have been a Roman, it turns out. It it really doesn't feel like a message episode to me. It feels no, it, like a, 
you know, let's let's throw the Enterprise crew in here and see what happens. And yeah, you know, now, now we're in Roman world. Exactly. And in yeah. a piece of the action, they changed it because they were the ones that screwed it up. In 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 this episode, that I've forgotten the name of. We're in the middle of it. Bread and circuses. <laughs> in bread and circuses, they throw them in the middle of it. Oh, we didn't do this. We didn't start this. And I've got this prime directive thing that I suddenly care about. So we're not going to do anything to change it. Right. There is an interesting uh, sort of dissection here about the Prime Directive. We're learning more about it. So yep. in terms of morals, meanings, and messages, well, that's kind of uh, an insular thing that Star Trek fans will really enjoy is that, yeah, we get to talk about the Prime Directive. Cool. Taken outside of that context, purely of Star Trek, well, okay, does that really have a greater moral meaning or message? Not necessarily. Oh, and well, wait, wait. I argue that it does. I argue that the prime directive is a stand-in for whatever your code happens to be. It's like we talked about in the Omega Glory. I mean, oh, sure, I, sure. I mean, so I mean, the prime directive itself. Those words that you know that mm-hmm. non-interference policy. No, I don't think that applies necessarily outside of Star Trek. Yeah, but. Not doing the easy thing, because the easy thing would be to beam down with a bunch of heaters and lay waste to these Romans, right? Right, right. So, I mean, not doing the easy thing, but sticking by what you say you want to be or say what you want to do. I mean, that that is more applicable, I think. And so if we assume that this message ties into that, then, yes, I would say the message stands up. You kind of got to look for that message, though. Sure, sure. And and, and I think, you know, part of the thing here is that we've got very, very clearly – drawn lines between good and bad. You know, the the bad guys are the fascistic government, the Romans, who are putting people to death on a regular basis and getting entertainment out of it. And then the good guys are the uh, peace-loving, the brotherhood. (laughs) Um, So the lines are just sort of of very clear and very obvious. And I want to compare this then to – let's talk about the Omega Glory and uh, we can also kind of compare this back to uh, Who Mourns for Adonais. The thing about this episode compared to uh, Omega Glory, you know, these are both episodes that I appreciate the action. I appreciate the edge. I appreciate the the conflict. You know, all of that stuff is kind of cool. But then where you lost me with Omega Glory and where you lost me with this is – where it it stopped being it, it stopped surprising me by you know being clever or smarter or being a step ahead of me because everything then just sort of got laid out in a very obvious way once you bring in the flag in omega glory i feel like you're kind of done now i do agree with you that the message is there particularly for omega glory um but this is kind of the same way. Then when you introduce the idea of the son of God and this is how we're going to wrap things up, well, well, you stopped being clever and you just spoon-fed me the same thing that I probably just kind of already expected. Um, so I feel like the, the statement of the piece gets taken away and any of that just gets muddled. Now, let's compare it back to Who Mourns, okay? In that episode, the whole episode is grappling with this issue of man's relationship to God, man's relationship with the religion, the place of God and religion in this uh, supposedly advanced, more humanistic world. And then you, you drop in a line that undermines the whole big statement that that piece is making. This feels like we're not even really bothering to make a big statement. So I can't feel like where we end up really undermines anything. It's just sort of a letdown. It's sort of like, oh, okay. All right. I wonder, though, if it's just because you are, and I don't mean you any offense, 
Mm -hmm. But you know, the doctor is in. Are you (laughs) are you just bringing your own preconceived stuff with it? I mean, let's let's switch this up a bit. Of course I am. (laughs) Okay. Well, so 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 then let me ask you: Would you find it more clever if the whole time we thought this was a society that was driven by profit? P-R-O-F-I-T. And then yep. we find out in the end that Uhura's been listening. And no, they're not talking about profit. They're talking about the prophet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if, so if we're not talking about Christianity at this point. We're not talking about whatever baggage you bring. Yep. And don't misunderstand me. I got plenty. Okay. <laughs> but if we're not it. talking about the baggage it. that you bring with Christianity, but we make this a different religion that's here on the planet, let's make it Islam or let's make it something mm-hmm. else. Do you then find it more clever? Are you, are you offended because you I, – I, well – I think sometimes, oh man, we're both sons of the South, and I really don't know how we <laughs> say this politely. And we've already offended. Yeah, they're probably not listening anymore anyway. <laughs> you got stuff about Christianity. I mean, you just do, and it's okay. I mean, I you know some people do. I have some stuff about Christianity. I think ours is a little bit. Yours and mine are different from each other's, and certainly different from a lot of other people's as well. Would you, though, if this were a different religion that was thrown in there at the end, if this were a different, you know, sort of aha moment, would you be more forgiving? Maybe. Because I didn't feel like they were saying, look, Jesus is going to come save everybody and you know, everybody's going to go to heaven. And, and that uh-huh. seems to be what you're taking from it. And I'm wondering if you're not hearing what they're saying this episode. You're hearing, you know, what you've always heard your whole life starting, mm-hmm. you know, in Sunday school. And right. then, you know, up until the point that you're like, wait, how old am I now? I'm not going to Sunday school anymore. Well, but, but see, but I feel like that is what they're saying at the end of the episode. Okay, the, 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 when did the, they say that, though? Well, I, they don't need to come right out and say it. Okay, well, then in, they're not saying it. Dialogue. No, I, but, I, but I feel like they are. I feel like that's the implication. <laughs> I feel like that is totally the implication of the episode. All right. I mean, Kirk says he, he, they have their own Christ. He's not yes. saying they have their own revolutionary political figure. He's saying they have their own Christ. Right. Well, he already and, said they had their own Caesar. So, of course, he's going to say they yeah. have their own Christ. I mean, yeah. they say they have their own Rome. They're using the same names. It doesn't mean right, right, right. we already know that everything is not evolving the exact same way because when was the Council of Nicaea? Like 325, uh-huh. I think it was. <laughs> so at that point, I mean, when, when Constantine makes Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, okay, mm-hmm. we are, we're only about 300, 350 years out of, out of um, eight, well, we're three, 323, 325 A.D., Okay, yeah. it happens around yeah. then. So you can't say that everything that happened and everything that they're talking about is what's going to happen here. I know Spock does say, so eventually this idea is going to replace that idea. But I think that's a flaw in his logic because there is absolutely nothing to indicate that. It feels to me like you're, you're, you're sort of assuming that they're saying, you know, and they lived happily ever after. I don't feel like they're necessarily saying that. I think they're no. saying, oh, oh, the sun was, oh, S-O-N. Oh, we really, we, <laughs> you know, we really should try some of this wordplay stuff that we've heard about. <laughs> no, I, I understand, but I, I think it's two things. I mean, I, I think that I am getting burnt out on the, the whole parallel running too close. Oh, I'm with you on uh, that. I, because I mean, Bones even said, like, hey, they speak English. It's like, really, well, every place has spoken English <laughs> what so was far. The, what was the thing at the very yeah. beginning? Oh, look, it's uh, it's just like Earth, says Spock. And Kirk's like, yeah, like Earth, but different. And Spock's like, but it's really, really like Earth. But it's pretty much exactly <laughs> like Earth. Yeah, yeah so, like it, but different. Yeah. yeah. So, so here's the thing. When you present that, and they've presented it too many times, I want the story to go in a different direction. I, I really – I don't want it to be an Earth-like planet and it, Earth-like things happen 
that also happen to be exactly what happened in Earth's history. Like, that's the thing that sort of infuriates me about Earth-like episodes. And I understand that it's totally a a product of the budget and the production limitations of the show. Um, I I get that, absolutely. So I I can accept that. But we're we're kind of talking about two different things here, you know. Um, My frustration is the story running too close a parallel. So when you just decide, well, we're we're not only going to show you a parallel, we're going to hammer it home to make sure that you understand that this is absolutely a parallel. You know, previously in this episode, when I was talking about the idea of whether or not we say that this character, the son of God, is a character to be looked at divinely or as a social revolutionary, it's kind of kind of beside the point. You know, because all the Enterprise crew is interested in seeing is like, oh, look, this planet will probably change. This is taking them a long time to get around to that change. Um, Actually, all the Enterprise crew is interested in seeing is this planet in their rearview mirror. Yeah, right. They want to get home. Yeah. Let's well, get out of no, here. No, not even yeah. get home. Just get away just from any here. Any place else. Yeah. yeah. Hey, can we go back to the gangster planet, please? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how things are working out for them. Hey, are we smart enough to talk to the Metarons yet? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Maybe we could go see them. How's Trelane doing? He must be six now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go anywhere else. Hey, you know it would be more fun than doing this. Okay. That, that's a so, call back to a couple of weeks ago. So. Yeah, good job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my frustration with the episode is less to do uh, – well, I, it's partly about the <laughs> the attachment to a very specific – kind of religion that and maybe it is just shorthand maybe it is just sort of telegraphing to the audience you know um but i feel like it's too much on top of too much we've had too much of the earth parallel we've had too much of the exact replay of earth history and they keep justifying it in different ways they justified it very differently in a piece of the action because you could say this is a highly adapted society. They take whatever they can get from outside influence and they just run with it. So, okay, you, you build up a justification for it. Here, there's really no justification. Hey, look, we landed in ancient Rome that is now 20th century Rome and the religious political aspects of this are going to play out the same way as well or kind of the same way. Um, so that that drove me a little crazy. And and like I said, I really I really like the idea of Star Trek being able to make a statement when they take on something like that. If you're going to take on religion, if you're going to take on politics, do something with it. Make a statement and do something bold. And this I feel like they aren't making as much a statement. They're just having a fun adventure show. That's okay too. I just feel like it's muddled in with all the other stuff that's happening here. Fair enough. You know, I, I, I will say one thing. What's that? I would imagine in in some, if not all, of what you just said, uh-huh. some people might have something that they want to say. Maybe. Should we tell might. them this week how? <laughs> sure. I tell you what, I'll tell them. Ken, all right. Thank you. You, our listeners, can be part of this discussion. We welcome you to join us at Facebook, Skype, Twitter. Our handle at all three places is Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. That, again, is 323-522-5641. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And, uh, boy, if you can help us make sense out of this episode, 
please do. <laughs> um, Biggest something is. Yes. I cannot yes, believe it, but we are actually coming to the end of season two. <gasps> well, of the you know, original things, series. Things can only go up with season three. Can't <laughs> <they>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, won't you please join us next week as we wrap up season two with Assignment Earth. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Holy cow. We are two-thirds of the way through the original series. I need to start working on my jokes about cartoons soon. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.